Hello and welcome to the February 2nd, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine Highlights Podcast. Hard to believe it's February. In the strange times we are living through, the months seem to fly by while the COVID-19 pandemic seems to be lasting forever. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, to let you know what's new in the journal since our last podcast. The first article to note is a special article by Dr. Anthony Fauci and colleagues at the National Institutes of Health. According to these experts, one of the biggest challenges facing physicians, other clinicians, and public health professionals today is acknowledging that there's still much to learn about COVID-19 vaccination while still strongly encouraging vaccination efforts. Having a clear understanding of the data supporting the use of these new vaccines is critical to addressing that challenge, and this special article aims to arm readers with such information. As SARS-CoV-2 vaccines begin to be authorized and distributed, Many questions remain regarding who should receive these vaccines and the immediate, intermediate, and long-term impact of the vaccination program on the pandemic. The authors discuss the science behind and provide perspective on the vaccines furthest along in the development in the U.S. and highlight some of the important issues frontline healthcare professionals will need to be prepared to discuss with their patients. These issues include potential side effects of the vaccines, both short and long-term, safety and efficacy of the vaccines in special populations such as children, pregnant women, and individuals with underlying illnesses, and the duration of protection people can expect following vaccination. Among the issues they discuss is clinicians' important role in determining the long-term safety of the vaccines. They write, as large populations become vaccinated, it is possible for rare side effects to emerge. Although these vaccines have been administered to tens of thousands of people, Very rare and serious side effects often can only be observed after vaccination of millions of people. It would be difficult to clearly attribute these temporally associated events to vaccination without better data pointing to a causal relationship. We'll need to rely on careful epidemiologic evaluations of such events to sort out background morbidities within the population from the identification of new rare side effects attributable to vaccination. While most vaccine-related adverse events would be expected over the first few weeks to months after vaccination, the possibility remains that some could occur over the longer term. The logistics of collection and aggregation of such data will be highly complex given the number of vaccines that might be available by mid-2021, the number of shots required, and the diverse outlets planned for vaccination. Anyone suspecting an adverse event from vaccination is encouraged to report it to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. We all have many questions about these vaccines, and these authors outline the questions we don't yet have answers to and provide answers to those where answers are available. I think that the article should be required reading for all who wish to contribute to a successful vaccination program. The next article I'll mention reports a study of 468 critically ill patients admitted to the University of Pennsylvania Health System intensive care units with COVID-19 between March 1st and May 11th, 2020, and followed through July 1st. The researchers looked to see whether treatment and outcomes changed over the study period early during the pandemic. 68% of patients were treated with mechanical ventilation and 25% with vasopressors. The 28-day in-hospital mortality rate was 29%, and all-cause 30-day readmission rate was about 11%. In adjusted models, where patient acuity and other factors did not appear to change, 
the researchers noted that mortality decreased from 43.5% to 19.2% between the first and last 15-day periods in the study. While more research is needed to determine why survival rates increase, the authors suggest that better adherence to evidence-based standards of care therapies for critical illness, such as using high-flow nasal cannula to avert intubation and prone positioning of patients, may have contributed to the improved outcomes. Next is a commentary from George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences that describes a ransomware attack on the health system during the COVID-19 pandemic. The attack disabled access to electronic health records and left frontline healthcare professionals to rely on old-fashioned pen and paper, teamwork, and compassion to push through the crisis and deliver necessary care to their patients. According to the author, it was hard to ignore the poetic similarity between malware entering computer network and the coronavirus entering our population. Both expose the slow motion crises of a fraying infrastructure and a workforce already at the edge of burnout. Next is a systematic review of 61 studies, including more than 1.8 million people, that suggest that about one in three people with SARS-CoV-2 virus infection have no symptoms at the time when infection is detected. This review builds on an earlier, less systematic review by the same authors published in Annals in June 2020. The authors from Scripps Research reviewed studies and reports from around the world, including two massive serosurveys in England and Spain that tested the presence of SARS-CoV-2 antibodies in hundreds of thousands of people. In both studies, about one-third of individuals tested positive for the virus but never experienced symptoms. According to the authors, these findings suggest that during the pandemic, increased testing of people without symptoms could help to identify those who may unwittingly transmit the virus as a substantial proportion of transmission appears to be from people who are either pre-symptomatic or remain asymptomatic. Determining how effective vaccines are at preventing asymptomatic infection is also very important. The American College of Physicians and Annals of Internal Medicine hosted a third virtual COVID-19 vaccine forum on January 22nd. The focus of this forum was allocation and distribution of vaccine a topic that has created confusion and controversy as the nation works to get millions of Americans vaccinated. If you missed the live virtual event, you can view it on annals.org now. ACP and Annals of Internal Medicine invited four experts to offer their perspectives on vaccine allocation and distribution. Panelists included Dr. Amanda Cohen, Chief Medical Officer of the National Center for Immunizations and Respiratory Disease and Executive Secretary of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Dr. David Fairchild, Chief Medical Officer of CDS Minute Clinic and Professor of Medicine at University of Massachusetts Medical School. Dr. Mark Levine, Commissioner of Health for the State of Vermont and Dr. Wayne Riley, president of SUNY Downstate Health Sciences University and past president of the American College of Physicians. Dr. Jason Goldman, a member of the ACP Board of Regents, a practicing internist in Florida, and ACP's liaison to the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, moderated the discussion. The discussion provided information, perspectives, and ideas for improving the vaccination program from entities that each play a very critical role in allocation and distribution, the government, a retail pharmacy, a state public health department, and a large health system. Next is a report of an observational study that found that among critically ill adults with COVID-19, early therapeutic anticoagulation was not associated with improved survival. 
This is an important finding as hypercoagulability is thought to be a key mechanism of death in patients with COVID-19. Researchers from Massachusetts General Hospital, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Harvard Medical School studied health records for 3,239 critically ill adults with COVID-19 from 67 centers throughout the United States to evaluate the incidence of venous thromboembolism and major bleeding and examine the observational effect of early therapeutic anticoagulation on survival. A target trial emulation in which patients were categorized according to receipt or no receipt of therapeutic anticoagulation in the first two days of ICU admission was performed, and a Cox model with inverse probability weighting was used to adjust for confounding. The researchers found that the rates of radiographically confirmed venous thromboembolism and major bleeding were 6.3% and 2.8%, respectively. Male sex and higher D-dimer levels were independently associated with venous thromboembolism. Patients who received therapeutic anticoagulation the first two days of ICU admission had similar in-hospital survival compared with those who did not. These data suggest that rates of venous thromboembolism in critically ill patients with COVID-19 may be considerably lower than previously reported in smaller studies, and that initiation of early therapeutic anticoagulation may not have a survival benefit in critically ill patients. According to the study authors, these findings do not support early empirical use of therapeutic anticoagulation in critically ill patients with COVID-19. While the use of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine to prevent or treat COVID-19 has ceased in many settings that pay attention to scientific evidence, the use of these drugs was common earlier during the pandemic. The next article demonstrates the adverse consequences associated with the use of these drugs. Researchers from the University of Grenoble in France used the FDA Adverse Event Reporting System database to quantify the change in number and type of reported adverse drug reactions associated with hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine since the beginning of the outbreak, compared with 2018 and 2019. The team extracted 21,305 reports of 152,201 suspected adverse drug reactions concerning chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine from January 2018 through September 2020. The data showed that the number of reported adverse drug reactions for chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine more than doubled in 2020 compared with the same months in 2018 and 2019. Of adverse drug reactions reported in 2020, 97.1% were considered serious, whereas 73.4% and 84.8% were defined as serious in 2018 and 2019, respectively. Likewise, 5.1% of reported cases in 2020 were fatal, compared with 3.1% in 2018 and 1.9% in 2019. Despite the FDA's withdrawal of its emergency use authorization, the number of reported adverse drug reactions remained high, potentially reflecting the persistent use of these drugs. The risks and benefits of COVID-19 vaccination in pregnant women has been a topic of much discussion. Pregnant women were not eligible for participation in the vaccine trials, but many pregnant women are at risk for infection, and infection has risks for pregnant women and their babies. The controversy ramped up in late January when the WHO recommended against vaccinating pregnant women unless they were very high risk, such as a healthcare worker with definite COVID-19 exposure. This counters the recommendations of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. 
Right before the WHO issued their statement, Annals published a commentary that discussed the rationale for the American College of Obstetric and Gynecology's position. The authors, Dr. Laura Riley of Whale Cornell School of Medicine and Dr. Denise Jameson of Emory University School of Medicine, write that pregnant and lactating women should not be excluded from COVID-19 vaccination efforts. Evidence suggests that pregnant women with COVID-19 have higher risk than similar non-pregnant persons for poor health outcomes, and risk may also be higher for their babies. Of additional concern, the same racial and ethnic disparities in COVID-19 outcomes seen in the general population are observed in the pregnant population. They note that while pregnant and lactating women were not included in vaccine trials, Vaccination is a regular part of prenatal care, and few, if any, vaccines are contraindicated in breastfeeding women. The authors argue that on the basis of what we know about the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines, as well as broader principles of how vaccines work and the safety of other vaccines during pregnancy and breastfeeding, it seems that pregnant and lactating women can be safely included in COVID-19 vaccination efforts. Clinicians should be prepared to discuss the issues with their patients. From as early as February 2020, data from China indicated that the COVID-19 case fatality rate was three times higher in patients with diabetes than those without it. As the pandemic spread beyond China, mounting evidence showed that although individuals with diabetes were no more prone to SARS-CoV-2 infection than the overall population, they made up a disproportionately higher percentage of severe COVID-19 cases. These early analyses largely did not distinguish between types of diabetes, and given its prevalence, largely reflected the experience of patients with type 2 diabetes. This early lack of data specifically on patients with type 1 diabetes may have influenced the Centers for Disease Control's current guidance, which states that adult patients with type 2 diabetes are at increased risk for severe illness from COVID-19, whereas those with type 1 diabetes might be at an increased risk for severe illness. Consequently, type 1 diabetes is not included as a qualifying condition in prioritization schemes by many entities providing vaccination. However, the authors of a commentary published online on January 26 review more recent analyses that show that patients with type 1 diabetes experience markedly higher adjusted odds of hospitalization, severe illness, and death than patients who did not have type 1 diabetes. The authors argue that in conflict with present CDC guidance, these data demonstrate that when compared with individuals without diabetes, people with type 1 diabetes have a higher adjusted risk for adverse COVID-19 outcomes, regardless of degree of glycemic control, and should receive priority for vaccination. In the first article I'll mention, not related to the pandemic, reports a study of the effectiveness of preconception-initiated low-dose aspirin to increase live births among women with a history of pregnancy loss. A previous large randomized trial found that preconception-initiated low-dose aspirin therapy did not have a positive effect on pregnancy outcomes. However, this trial was subject to much non-adherence, which is not taken into account by the intention-to-treat analysis. The authors of the study reported in Annals constructed a prospective cohort using data from the trial to estimate per-protocol effects of preconception-initiated low-dose aspirin on pregnancy loss and live birth. The analyses included 1,227 women between the ages of 18 and 40 years who had one or two previous pregnancy losses and were attempting pregnancy again. The researchers found that relative to placebo, adhering to low-dose aspirin for at least five of seven days per week 
led to eight more pregnancies, 15 more live births, and 60 fewer pregnancy losses for every 100 women in the trial. Furthermore, benefits were observed with a minimum adherence of aspirin taken four of seven days per week. The authors conclude that improving adherence to daily low-dose aspirin seems to be key in improving effectiveness in preventing pregnancy loss in this population. Next is a report of a large survey of healthcare workers that found that community and demographic factors, such as contact with a confirmed or suspected COVID-19 positive case outside the workplace, and black race were stronger predictors of COVID-19 infection than occupational exposures. Researchers from Emory University Medical School and Rollins School of Public Health fitted a logistic regression model to data from a cross-sectional survey of healthcare workers conducted from April to June 2020 within their healthcare system to quantify occupational, community, and demographic risk factors for SARS-CoV-2 seropositivity. The researchers found an overall seroprevalence of 3.8% among the healthcare workers after the initial surge of the epidemic. After adjusting for possible bias due to voluntary participation in testing, black race remained a stronger predictor of infection than workplace exposure. The researchers explained that racial disparities, now well documented in the general population, extend to healthcare workers after accounting for other risk factors, including job role and workplace COVID-19 exposure, underscoring the fundamental societal inequities that have become a hallmark of the COVID-19 pandemic. These disparities must be considered when examining workplace COVID-19 risk. While the authors adjusted for community risk by including zip code level COVID-19 incidents in their model, they cannot account for more proximal factors that may have contributed to higher risk for infection among black healthcare workers, including higher likelihood of exposure at home or use of public transportation. The next article reports a randomized control trial of the antibiotic profaximin before and after transdrugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt placement, a minimally invasive procedure for treating portal hypertension-related complications of cirrhosis to see if it helped prevent hepatic encephalopathy compared to placebo. Potential complications of TIPS include shunt dysfunction and the development of hepatic encephalopathy. The rate of shunt dysfunction has been dramatically reduced by the use of polytetrafluoroethylene-covered stents but hepatic encephalopathy still occurs in 35 to 50% of patients. U.S. and European guidelines published in 2014 recommend no prophylactic therapy to prevent overt hepatic encephalopathy after TIPS placement. Researchers from Toulouse, France, randomly assigned 197 patients with cirrhosis undergoing TIPS to receive either rifaximin or placebo beginning 14 days before the procedure and continuing 168 days after to determine if rifaximin would prevent overt hepatic encephalopathy. An episode of overt hepatic encephalopathy occurred in 34% of patients in the rifaximin group and 53% in the placebo group during the post-procedure period. Neither the incidence of adverse events nor transplant-free survival was significantly different between the two groups. According to the researchers, the study supports the use of rifaximin to prevent post-tips hepatic encephalopathy in patients with cirrhosis. The American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation devoted its 2020 forum to the topic of building trust in health equity during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
The forum aimed to promote understanding of the inequities that have contributed to the especially devastating impact of COVID-19 in vulnerable communities. A commentary describing the strategies highlighted during the forum was published in Annals on February 2nd. Initially projected to be the fourth most at-risk country for COVID-19 due to close ties with China, on December 21st, Taiwan marked 253 consecutive days without a locally transmitted case and a cumulative total of 770 cases and only seven deaths. Despite imported cases, Taiwan had successfully contained COVID-19 without a national lockdown. The next article reports a study that aimed to assess the possibility of undocumented COVID-19 deaths in Taiwan and whether non-pharmaceutical interventions and behavior changes affected other causes of deaths during 2020. The researchers collected data from 2008 to 2020 for yearly population and all-cause deaths, weekly pneumonia influenza deaths, and monthly road traffic deaths. They calculated for each year the corresponding adjusted mortality rates per 100,000 people. The results suggest that excess mortality in Taiwan in 2020 is highly unlikely as the all-cause adjusted mortality rate decreased compared to 2019 and does not depart from the ongoing declining trend of the previous years. COVID-19 deaths could be undercounted or misclassified as pneumonia or influenza due to symptomatic similarity and inadequate testing. However, the low pneumonia and influenza mortality rate detected in 2020 suggests that the measures used to control COVID-19 may have had positive spillover effect on other respiratory infection. In contrast, road traffic deaths, which showed an overall downward trend since 2008 with a slight increase in 2017, increased significantly during the first 10 months of 2020. The authors speculate that this may be related to behavior changes indirectly triggered by the pandemic, such as shifting from public to private transport, including cars and motorbikes, which carry higher accident risk. This brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll go to annals.org to delve deeper into some of the new material I've mentioned. I also hope you'll return in two weeks for another update on what's new in Annals. Stay well as we all continue to do our best to end the pandemic. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.